Hi everyone, my name is Christina Wong and I'm a member of the City Bar's Criminal Justice Operations Committee. Um, along with my fellow committee member, Julian Harris-Calvin, who's sitting right there, um, we want to thank you so much for attending this event tonight. We really appreciate you all being here. So this event is about the punitive residency restrictions that people on the sex offender registry face and the numerous and varied problems that result because of these restrictions. Our panelists will speak, among other things, about the policy behind the residency restriction and the sex offender registry in general, the practical consequences that result, and the legal challenges being made on behalf of people who are subject to the restriction. But first I want to give you a brief introduction to explain some of the acronyms and legal jargon um, and sort of give you a baseline um, for tonight for what to expect. So first, let's talk about language. So people affected by this residency restriction are often referred to as sex offenders, which is really just a dehumanizing label that stereotypes and marginalizes people instead of supporting them while they're trying to rebuild their lives. So I encourage you to use other phrases like person who has committed a sex offense, person on the registry, incarcerated person, formerly incarcerated person instead, uh, because no one, you know, whether they're on the registry or not, deserves to be defined by their criminal history, and the words that we use to reference people should reflect their full identities and their capacity for growth and change. Second, you're going to hear two very similar acronyms during this panel. Sorry about that. Um, the first of which is SORA, that's S-O-R-A. And SORA stands for the Sex Offender Registry Act, which went into effect in New York State in 1996. SORA created the Sex Offender Registry here in New York. Each person on the registry is given a risk level. Level one is low risk, level two is medium risk, and level three is high risk, based on a risk assessment instrument. And this instrument assigns points for certain risk factors, such as the nature of the offense, whether the person accepted responsibility, et cetera. And we'll have more talk about this later in the panel. Um, but everyone is entitled to a court proceeding about their risk level where they'll be represented by a lawyer who will argue on their behalf for a lower risk level. You'll hear the panelists use SORA to refer to people who are on the sex offender registry, such as SORA clients, um, or the hearings that are used to determine a person's risk level, so a SORA hearing. Um, so try your best not to get SORA confused with the next acronym, which is SARA, S-A-R-A. And SARA stands for the Sex Assault Reform Act, which was established in 2000 and amended in 2005. And the 2005 amendments created the residency restriction that this panel discussion is all about. Um, so the panelists will often use, uh, refer to the residency restriction as SARA. Um, so SARA prohibits certain people on the registry from living within 1,000 feet of a school, which, as most of you probably know, in New York City is an impossible task. Um, generally, people on the sex offender registry who are on certain types of court supervision are subject to SARA if they're deemed level three, so a high risk, or if their offense was committed against a minor. There are a few wrinkles to this restriction, but I'll let the panelists explain again. Um, so and with that, let me introduce our panelists for tonight. So first of all, um, right here we have our moderator, Camilla Shu. Uh, Camilla is appellate counsel at the Center for Appellate Litigation, and she has experienced litigating SORA hearings and challenges to SARA restrictions. She previously worked as a public defender at the Bronx Defenders and as an E. Barrett Prettyman Fellow at Georgetown University Law Center, 
where she represented indigent clients facing criminal charges, supervised student attorneys, and assisted with classroom instruction in Georgetown's criminal defense and prisoner advocacy clinic. Next we have Michael Burke. Michael is a criminal defense lawyer at Hodges, Walsh, Messimer, and Burke, LLP, who is experienced in handling SORA hearings for clients with both state and federal convictions. Michael is a member of the federal CJA panel, which means that he is appointed by the federal courts to represent individuals in criminal cases who are unable to pay for a lawyer. Michael is a former Kings County assistant district attorney. Next we have Emily Horowitz. Uh, Emily is the professor and chairperson of the Sociology and Criminal Justice Department at St. Francis College. She's the author of Protecting Our Kids, How Sex Offender Laws Are Failing Us, and co-editor of Caught in the Web of the Criminal Justice System, Autism, Developmental Disabilities, and Sex Offenses. She co-directs the New York Sex Offense Working Group with Bill Dobbs and serves on the board of the Alliance for Constitutional Sex Offense Laws, a national civil rights and legal reform organization. At St. Francis, she founded the Post-Prison College Program, an initiative that helps formerly incarcerated men and women earn college degrees. Next, we have Bob Newman. Uh, Bob is a staff attorney in the Legal Aid Society Criminal Defense Practices Special Litigation Unit. Bob has many years of experience litigating issues related to housing restrictions for people on the registry. Um, and for those of you who are lawyers in the room, among them is the Berlin v. Evans case um, in which a trial judge held the Sarah Law, the housing restriction law, to be ex post facto, and he's currently lead counsel in a really important case, the pending Alcantara v. Anucci case, which challenges the use of residential treatment facilities to house people on the registry beyond the maximum dates of their sentences because they can't find addresses that are compliant with these housing restrictions. And he's also litigated several other cases addressing parole conditions. Next, we have Susanna Carlin. Uh, Susanna has a master's degree in social work from Columbia University. She works at the Center for Appellate Litigation, an appellate public defense organization that serves clients in Manhattan and the Bronx. Susanna coordinates Cal's reentry services, connecting people coming home from prison to community programs. She's a member of the New York State Association for the Treatment of Sex Abusers. Next, we have Greg Williams. Greg is a former client at the Center for Appellate Litigation who has personal experience dealing with these unjust restrictions, and he's bravely agreed to share his story tonight. He's currently employed at the Fortune Society. And finally, we have Bill Dobbs. Bill is an attorney, civil libertarian, and activist. He's the publisher of The Dobbs Wire, a newsletter concerned with sex offense law and policy. He's co-director of the New York Sex Offense Working Group with Emily Horowitz. And this is a group that organizes events in New York City to promote awareness about local and national sex defense policies. And Bill is also an advisor to the Sex Defense Litigation and Policy Resource Center at Mitchell Hamline Law School. And he co-founded the University of Michigan Law School's GLBT group known as Outlaws. So with that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Camilla. So I just wanted to um, begin uh, just by talking about the historical background, the context in which the registry itself came about, um, and then how 
these residency restrictions um, were created um, and sort of some of the uh, thinking that might have led to these. Um, so I'll ask you, Emily, um, to tell us a little about sort of the, in, in the impulses and instincts uh, that, that led to the registry in the first place um, and then to these residency restrictions. Um, well, as Bill Dobbs can probably better tell you, uh, we've had registries around since the 40s um, for, uh, uh, they started for um, gay uh, men and, and women, and they, they, they were, it was, California had the first registry, but they really became widespread um, after a few really high-profile murders of children in the late 80s and early 90s. The first public registry law was passed in Washington State in 1990 um, after a horrific uh, murder. Um, and Megan's Law and the Adam Walsh Act were passed in 1994 and 1996. So now for over 20 years, we've had public registries in all 50 states. But there is a long history of registries, um, which probably Bill can weigh in on a little more. My expertise is about, you know, involved sex offense registries. Um, and the interesting thing is they came about really fast um, after these cases, Adam Walsh, Eitan Pates, uh, Megan Kanka, um, and they emerged. I'm a sociologist, so I'm always interested in um, research and data, and they emerged very quickly. They emerged uh, after a political uproar uh, spearheaded by victims and politicians, um, and they, there was no research that showed these laws would have any impact on rates of sex offenses, particularly these, these statistically rare events uh, involving children, but that really got a lot of coverage. Um, Bill, do you, would you, could you provide us a little bit of the, no, the, the earlier good. background? It's 22 years since registries blanketed the country. The last one, last registration law, the final one to be enacted was Massachusetts. Uh, California in the 1930s and 40s was tracking members of organized crime, and by the late uh, 1940s had begun to track certain kinds of sex offenses that were a way to figure out what sexual minorities gay men were doing. Um, all that was law enforcement only stuff. So uh, there is a long, ugly, homophobic history. Um, Bob, perhaps you can give us a little bit of the background behind um, the enactment of SARA. Um, and uh, the, our focus this evening, um, that thousand foot rule. Um. Well, I, I can do that. Uh, SARA stands for Sexual Assault Reform Act. And the Sexual Assault Reform Act was first adopted by the legislature here in 2001. It toughened penalties for a number of sex offenses and also contained a provision fairly unexceptional at the time which said that sex offenders whose victims were children or adolescents, persons under the age of 18, could not uh, enter upon school grounds or other facilities where children were present. That did not have a great impact or yield any litigation at the time. But in 2005, in the last year of the George Pataki administration, the legislature amended Sarah to do th two things. First, 
it extended the restriction to include all level three or so-called high-risk offenders, whether their victims were children or adults, and it expanded the restriction so that instead of just not being able to be on school grounds, you had to not enter within a thousand feet of school grounds, measured by the real property boundary line of the school. And they chose to adopt a provision of the defined school grounds by adopting a provision of the penal law originally intended for the entirely different purpose of punishing people who sold drugs around school grounds. There wasn't really any legislative memo explaining why this thousand-foot residency restriction was adopted. The state senate had been trying to pass something like this for some time, but somehow it passed through the assembly with many members of the assembly not even reading it. And uh, we never were able to understand just what were the political dynamics which led this to be passed, except that no one wanted to stand up and be heard in any way that would seem to be lenient toward sex offenders. And uh, so in 2005, they amended the Sarah Law to include this 1,000-foot restriction. For a number of years after that, the state continued to parole, and this, apply, this applied and does apply only to people who are under parole supervision, but parole supervision lasts a long time for many people. And for a long time, the state continued to parole people in New York City to the homeless shelter system, but uh, then in 2014, it was revealed that the 30th Street intake shelter for the homeless system, also known as Bellevue, was actually about 800 feet from a private school. So persons could no longer be paroled to enter the homeless shelter system. And that resulted in the invention, as I put it, of residential treatment facilities where people on parole are housed, which is what I'm litigating about. Um, and so just to clarify some of the contours of this um, statute, so as, we, as we've been saying, um, it, it applies to people um, adjudicated at a level three at the SORA hearing uh, or whose complainant was um, a minor. Uh, so, so that second half of it means that you could go to a hearing, have a judge say, I believe you, you fall into the, the lowest category, the, the, pose the lowest risk of reoffense and nonetheless be subject to this restriction because the complainant in your case um, was uh, a minor. And similarly, you could be adjudicated at a level three with no, um, no suggestion of the involvement of a, of a minor in the offense in any way and, and be subject to this restriction which seemingly is directed at limiting your, your contact with minors. Um, and I think another sort of part of this to be aware of is that on its face, this statute says that you can't knowingly enter within a thousand feet of, of schools or other institutions 
primarily serving uh, minors, but, but practically speaking, as Bob is saying, this is playing out as, as a residency restriction. But the, the astonishing breadth of what it says on its face is thankfully not um, right now uh, playing out as a, as a real life restriction. But I think maybe we can talk a little bit more about um, exactly how this is affecting people. So Susanna, you're, you're um, working directly with people um, who are anticipating navigating these upon their release and who are navigating these issues uh, after their release. And so perhaps you could talk to us a little bit about um, the, the concrete hurdles that people are facing. So while this statute has been around for a while, the implications that have happened since 2014 really have taken everybody by surprise. There's been no preparation for it, and in the past four years, really no remedy. Prior to 2014, if you had a sex offense conviction, regardless of your level, and you had a Sarah uh, restriction, you can be, and you did not have a home that maybe wanted you back, but if they lived within a thousand feet of a school, you couldn't go there. Uh, what docs would do to permanent corrections, we would release you to the Bellevue Men's Shelter, that's the intake area, and from there you would go to one of the assessment shelters that were deemed more than a thousand feet from the school. So I think there are about four shelters now with maybe a hundred beds. Um, but at, at 2000, February of 2014, with Senator Jeff Klein in the Bronx, who is running for re-election, decided that Bellevue can no longer take anybody with a sex offense who has a SAR restriction Suddenly everything stopped and people had, the docs and Department of Homeless Services had to scramble how they were going to handle this. Um, so, and they're still trying to figure out how they're going to handle it four years later. If you had a release date and you did not have housing, the shelter said parole wasn't releasing everybody. Well, they couldn't go to Bellevue, so Bellevue had said we'll just have to take them as they come. So there's supposedly a list of people, we've never seen it, um, but regardless of when your release date was, you were not going to be released to the shelter system until parole said it was okay. So the consequences of that are we have people who have been waiting, I have clients who've been waiting for two years past their release date. Now there are two kinds of release dates. There's a conditional release date, which means you've served the time and you've completed your programming and you have good time, you can be released at a certain time, which is generally short of your maximum expiration date, which is the final date you have to be let go then. People who had been serving time 10, 20, 30 years expecting to be out on their conditional release date were to find out that they weren't going anywhere um, until they found housing. <coughs> Then their maximum expiration dates came. This is the time when your sentence is over. And because there was still this housing crunch, they were still not being released. So Department of Corrections made this thing called the Residential Treatment Facility, which is supposed to be a step-down unit. It is not a step, it's exactly the same rules as prison. You're in the prison, you're not going into the community, and you're being held there for up to six months your maximum expiration. More than that. Well, yes. <laughs> then, then when the six months is up, I believe, I don't know if you had to sign anything, but I believe parole comes to you because technically now you're on parole and you've finished your sentence. 
parole comes to you and says, well, we're not ready, we have no housing for you, so you have to sign this so we can keep you another six months. If you don't sign it, you're gonna be in violation of your parole. So you have to understand, there are people who have waited 25 years for their release date only to find out somehow, and, and if they're, if they're in contact with a, a good law firm, the law firm has prepared them hopefully for this, that they're not going anywhere. Some people have sex offenses from the 1970s and are in on totally unrelated charges, have never committed another sex offense, are in on totally unrelated charges, yet that is keeping them from being released. Yeah, there is a legal dispute about this. The position of DOTS, the New York State, is that if you have ever been convicted of a sex offense, even if it was before SORA was enacted, then you are subject to this law. I mean, if you are level three under SORA, you're subject to the law, even though your sentence is completely over. And if it was before SORA, they make you what's called a discretionary sex offender and subject you to the thousand foot restriction that's even though if your current crime is drug sale or burglary or robbery or something that has nothing to do with sex. Um, I, I wanted to also um, put this question to uh, Greg, and thank you so much for um, sharing your experiences with us. Um, this is a law that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, that, that that came into effect whilst you're incarcerated. So not something that anybody, in fact, could um, have warned you about at the time that you, um, you know, were fighting your case uh, at the trial level. Um, when did you uh, first become aware that you would be subject to, to these restrictions? And, and practically, what was it like when, uh, when, when the time came that that was what was um, holding you in? I believe it was, a, <clears throat> excuse me, approximately maybe three or four years before my CR conditional release, and I think I was, although I was disappointed, I was pretty much prepared. You know, they told me what to expect. Uh, of course, I did my own reading and research, and when the time came, it was very disappointing. It was very disappointing, especially on my family. You do everything you're supposed to. You improve. And this is what happens. And it's no fault of your own. It's, it gets to a point where you're like, okay, well, maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe next week. It doesn't come. It becomes a tremendous disappointment. I spent approximately two years past my condition of release, basically from week to week, from day to day, waiting to be, wait, just waiting to be released. Nothing I can do about it. Um, and and this is something that um, we'll probably touch on. Um, that some of the litigation around um, SAR is challenging, but DOCS um, 
supposed to provide you with assistance in securing housing. Could you could you talk about <laughs> what was the process by which you know uh, you were you were was, trying to find housing? There was zero assistance, and pretty much the five or six um, residences that I offered that were valid and legit were basically either not examined or given a blanket excuse of a no. And um, I think in your materials there's a, there's a map that sort of roughly depicts um, what are all of the areas in the five boroughs that um, fall into this restriction that, that are within a thousand feet of um, a school. So um, as you can see it's really the vast majority of the city area. We're talking about really tiny slivers uh, where you would not fall um, into that um, blanket area. Um, I wanted to also ask you, Michael, um, I know that you're working primarily uh, in counties outside of the New York City area um, and also with a lot of um, clients with federal convictions. Um, many of them are in my, from talking to you before this panel started, I understand not subject to the SARA restrictions, but can you talk a little bit about some of the um, local restrictions that might come into play for your clients um, or some of the uh, restrictions that federal probation may be um, imposing uh, on your clients? And, and again, to be clear, uh, because this is a rule that's tied to um, New York State community supervision, if you have a federal conviction and you're not... Um, you're not supervised in the community by New York State, then, you're, then you would fall outside of the ambit of this um, statute. Yes. Um, a fair number of my past clients are um, clients who have been charged with possession of child pornography, so what they would typically call non-hands-on offenses. Um, there's a lot of federal statutes that address the possession of child pornography where there's mandatory minimums for receipt or possession. Or then there's also just the straight possession that doesn't have mandatory minimums. But similar to registry requirements, the sentencing guidelines have been continued to be ramped up by congressional uh, action, where you see now that, that um, any type offense, garden variety, will have sentencing guidelines that are, for lack of a better word, through the roof um, for non-hands-on offenses. So, what you first try to do when you have a client that's been charged with this uh, is to try to get it into a, a possession type format so that you can have you won't have the five-year mandatory minimum that you would face. Um, the the registry, as everyone knows, it's for a level one, it's 20, and for a two and three, it's lifetime registry. It used to be 10, um, and then they changed the the registry requirement soon after that. Now it's th that that um, division between the level one as being a 20-year registry and then two and three being the lifetime. Um, and what you find when you, when you do the risk assessment tool is that it's really a, a tool designed more for hands-on offenses than for the non-hands-on. There's, there's enhancements that I've come across outside of county, particularly in, in certain counties that, um, that uh, they have taken a position that they want to try to score out people at level threes um, in Westchester, Putnam, Rockland, where they would add these enhancements for these non-hands-on offenders, and there's categories that would allow for it, scoring under the tool, such as relationship to victim, where there's a stranger enhancement, and if you're possessing child pornography, 
that they're, they're almost all of them are strangers. So that's, that's an anomaly in the, in the risk assessment tool. Same with number of victims, which again is designed towards um, trying to make sure that, that people that are at greater risk, each image is considered a separate victim. So that's another one that gets added on. And you add those two on, and then you have someone who's scoring at a level two or even a level three when it's a non-hands-on offense, and they're, they're required to register for life. Um, and they have the other housing restrictions that we've come across. We did have, and I, I pulled this because it, it was from, from a while back, when the probation department in Rockland County reached out to the defense bar to assist them in a local law, because what you'll find is that there's a lot of different municipalities, again, that, that took the position of, we want to mirror what New York State's doing, and we want to have this kind of not-in-my-backyard mentality of not having sex offenders live here. So we'll, we'll put in place this broad local law that has restrictions of 1,000 feet from a school or from where, play, where children may congregate. So those laws, thankfully, we had a, a courageous judge in Rockland County, Judge Kelly, who took the position and struck down that law um, based on a, a preemption argument that was advanced for uh, a gentleman who was an Orthodox um, Jew who was observant. He gave five residencies that um, he said to probation, here's where I'd like to live. All of them are rejected because of the local law restrictions. And the judge said he'd struck down the local law saying that, that it was unduly restrictive and New York State had taken the position of, of passing the, the uh, SARA Act so they had the exclusive um, rights to monitor that. So if you come across, and there are other counties that, and other municipalities that have these laws on the books, that when you have a client that's perhaps being released out of, outside of New York City, you have to make sure that if there are those laws in place that you could perhaps challenge based on a preempt, uh, preemption argument. But the key, when, when I have clients that are charged with the child pornography, I first go through the risk assessment. I try to get to the Board of Examiners early on um, favorable psychosexual reports or favorable reports from where they've been incarcerated so that the Board of Examiners can analyze that and hopefully say, all right, there, there are grounds here for a downward variance on the risk assessment because once you're at that risk assessment level, it's very difficult. You have to serve 10 years before you can make an application to have them um, go from a, a three to a two. So uh, the corrections law is, is pretty rigorous and it is a, a scarlet letter for life. So it really is something that at that stage when you're dealing with the, the registry, you really want to try to advocate for your client to get the level one. Um, and with my clients as federal offenders, I run into those issues. Thankfully, there is a, a policy statement that the Board of Examiners has begun to realize that the, um, with the, the child pornography cases in particular, that there is that anomaly that I talked about for enhancing um, for relationship to victim and number of victims. The policy statement came out in June of, um, hang on, I have it here, June of 2012, and it says that People v. Johnson is a, a court of appeals case that said you can add the enhancements here, but if there aren't other um, aggravating factors, you shouldn't. So it's really kind of saying from the Board of Examiners, this law needs to be changed. The risk assessment tool is not working for the non-hands-on offenders. They haven't changed it. There isn't anyone there advocating for change, but at least this policy statement's out there where there's a recognition that the registry requirement is not working for those type of offenders. One thing I'd like to quickly add to what uh, Michael said, that if you're level one and you're on parole and you, 
you would still be subject to the Sarah law in a child pornography case because the victim is under age. But one, this is important for our indigent clients. If you are level two or three, you, your lifetime registrant, you can never live in public housing or publicly supported housing like Section 8. If you can get your level reduced to a level one, then that congressional restriction doesn't apply to you and you could live in such housing. Um, yeah, I, I just want to sort of open this question to, to Bill and to Emily as well. Through the working group, I'm sure you have, you, you know personally, um, people who have dealt with these um, restrictions prolonging their incarceration past the end of the sentence that a judge said they were going to serve. Um, and then uh, th this, this shelter situation, as a couple of people have alluded to, there's this kind of mysterious line, uh, Q, um, that people are joining to get into the shelter system. We don't really understand it, what dictates the order or uh, how, how long one stays in that line, but uh, if you could just sort of tell us a little more also about um, things you've heard about how, how people are, are, are affected by these um, restrictions. Um, there was a member of our working group who was living in a placement in the Rockaways, and they were trying to kick his door down, vigilantes, and he couldn't get any help from the community board. But what I don't want to lose sight of is the bigger picture, which is, you know, we're a little crazy about punishment in this country. Way too many people get too much punishment, to put it mildly when it's anything to do with sex, even remotely related, um, the punishments go off the charts. So we've got a set of laws, I didn't realize it was all like a package, the so-called sex offense legal regime, that are truly sadistic and destructive. Could we live without them? Um, absolutely. There's criminal laws to deal with all this stuff, but this idea of a surveillance state and blacklist and where you can live, I mean, Emily might want to jump in. What does the research tell us about residency restrictions? Not every state has residency restrictions. Right, and actually California rolled back their residency restrictions because they saw that the main effect was a huge increase in homelessness. Um, and it's much easier if you are so concerned about monitoring people. Uh, it's easier to monitor people who have housing. But the research on residency restrictions is very clear. They neither increase nor decrease incidence of sex offenses. And when you say get rid of them, we didn't have uh, uh, public sex offense registries uh, in this country until 1990 was really the first one, until the mid-90s. Uh, sex offenses against children were decreasing before registries. There's no evidence at all that registries uh, of any kind um, decrease uh, sex offenses or make kids any safer, but residency restrictions in particular, there's no evidence. There's no evidence that, that, that um, they have any impact. And so it's really sad when you hear Mr. Williams and you realize for what? It's just vengeance, it's just draconian. There is no, no evidence or purpose. And um, it's very frustrating. And 22 years of research has shown us that all they do is punish and punish and punish. And even in particular with, with uh, child pornography offenses um, where, you know, the question of who's a victim is, is very uh, uh, difficult to discern. 
there's so much evidence that people who are convicted of child pornography offenses are, are even less likely to recidivate than, than other types of offenses, yet the punishment, there's triple-digit sentences in some uh, jurisdictions for non-contact offenses. Um, we really lost a, our mind. There's a huge disconnect in this area of the law between what's rational and what's popular. And just getting that tension out in the open and to fight over it would be actually an advance. Because right now, um, the idea that you could do without these laws mostly gets ignored. And mostly what people say is, well, you could slim the registry down and everything would be fine. The Supreme Court issued a decision some years ago stating that the rate of recidivism for sex offenders is frightening and high. And uh, this rationale has been used repeatedly to justify these laws. The article back from back 20 or 30 years ago, which was the basis for this statement, has been completely discredited by later research. And yet courts continue to cite this one sentence from the Supreme Court opinion to justify these laws. Um, and one other thing that I would add about this is um, in, in looking back at, at the statistics in our office of um, clients we represented um, who are required to register, we found that 45% of our clients are being subjected to this residency restriction. So it really does not, uh, it's not in any way sort of a thing that's reserved for a very small percentage uh, of people on the registry. Um, I, if, if you wouldn't mind sharing with us, Greg, I was going to ask you a little bit about your experiences once, once you did get released. Um, were you still, um, you had a period of supervision left um, once you were released? Yes, um, and and, and how, uh, how is that restriction affecting you, you know, up till today? Well, first of all, I was in Far Rockaway for approximately 90 days mm -hmm. on my release. And then all of a sudden, what happened was parole decided, only God knows why, but parole decided that the place where we were living was no longer compliant. So then it became immediate that we all had to leave, which was kind of odd considering if you do your own research, you can tell that the facility that they were referring to was close to twice the distance. But whoever, some powers to be, decided this is no longer compliant, and we had to leave. And it wasn't that we had to leave, but it was that we had to leave immediately. So what they did was they actually penalized us by placing more restrictions on us meaning they gave us uh, ankle monitors until we left the facility. I'd like to actually just expand and, and correct me if I'm wrong. When he says immediately, he means they were woken up at 5.30 in the morning, there are about 19 people in this residence, and brought to Bellevue to be reassigned to other shelters. And the Department of Homeless Services said we can't place all of these people right now. And parole said, you have to. And there was a some kind of video, video conference, conference with between the commissioners. The commissioners yeah. And finally, Department of Homeless Services said, not going to happen. And then 
parole is what we're going to do with everybody. Meanwhile, he missed a day of work, and so did everybody else. Um, they were brought back to the shelter, and ankle ankle bracelets were back slapped to parole, on. Yes, brought back to the we're, parole. We were actually uh, told to report the, the following day, and that was our gift, our parting gift, if you will. And what Mr. Williams describes has happened. Uh, with respect to a number of residences that were initially approved and then disapproved by parole. I have heard the same account from at least half a dozen different men. Um, and Bob, I think your Alcantara case has sort of shed a little bit of light on this um, interaction between uh, DHS and DOCS and uh, what they, the sort of agreement that they have come to. Um, could you tell us a little bit about, about that? Uh, well, the, uh, we started hearing from men who were held in prison because of the reinterpretation of the Sarah Law in 2014, and we had numerous conference calls with uh, Anthony Annucci, the acting commissioner of DOCS, and several of his deputies in trying to resolve this problem, we were unable to. Then we engaged a law firm the next year, and in 2016, more than two years ago now, we filed this uh, lawsuit, uh, Alcantara versus Anucci, on behalf of six named petitioners, and uh, we filed it as a class action, although the judge denied class certification the judge ordered a hearing, which has not yet been held, on our main claim that the Fishkill Residential Treatment Facility did not meet the standards required in the law for a residential treatment facility, which as Susanna described, we believe it's a step-down transitional facility intended to be a transition from prison to the community in which people will be able to go out into the community and look for housing and look for jobs and get treatment outside of the prison system. And that is not how these residential treatment facilities actually work. Um, the persons in them are treated in all respects as prisoners. They wear prison uniforms, they are behind barbed wire, they live in the same dorms as other prisoners, although some of them live in a particular dorm which is known as the sex offender dorm, um, and you can imagine uh, what that does to the uh, reputations of these people within the prison system, because everybody knows what they're there for. They wear prison uniforms, they do the same jobs as prisoners. It's a, it's a prison in all but name. The state, what they did was the person who had designed the sex offender counseling and treatment program, which is a program given to all persons serving sentences for sex offenses, designed a program which was an abbreviated, uh, short-term combination of the sex offender counseling and treatment program 
and the Transitional Phase Three program, which is like employment counseling. Both of these programs are offered to persons who are actually serving their prison sentences. And by creating this new seven-week program for people who are in this so-called residential treatment facility who have actually passed the maximum expiration date of their sentences and are officially on post-release supervision but have never actually been released, the state is arguing that this so-called RTF program distinguishes the RTF from a regular prison sufficiently to comply with the law. And we are saying in our Alcantara litigation that it doesn't. It's just a Alice in Wonderland a semantic trick being employed by the state. We have taken depositions from 14 employees and uh, officials of DOTS. They won't let us depose Anthony Annucci, but we have deposed a number of other people, and we are hoping uh, later, uh, sometime in the next few months, to actually have an evidentiary hearing on our claim that uh, these RTFs uh, are phony and uh, that it's illegal to uh, house persons who have completed their sentences in these prisons by another name. And, and I think that um, what you just pointed out about the, the length of this abbreviated um, uh, program just points to this, this disproportion. As, as we've heard, people are spending lengthy periods of time at these RTFs past the ma maximum expiration uh, of their sentences, well past seven weeks past the maximum expiration date. So, so if you actually think about sort of what they're claiming, because one of the definitional attributes of an RTF is that you're doing programming sort of that's supposed to help you get back into society, is if you follow that through, it just suggests there's this sort of Kafka-esque cycle of doing this seven-week program over and over and over and over again that's supposed to prepare you to, to go back to society. Uh, and, and in fact, what you're doing is waiting in this mysterious line for, for, your, for your shelter space to come up. And they don't do it over and over again. That once they, they finish the seven weeks, they're just treated as regular prisoners uh, after that. Now, another thing I believe uh, Susanna mentioned in this too, uh, under the law, there's a provision that for the first six months after you complete your sentence, you can be in a residential treatment facility, provided we say that it really is a step-down transitional residential treatment facility and not a prison. But the state claims, based on what we feel is a very warped and distorted reading of the law, that they can renew your placement in the residential treatment facility every six months until you find housing and they can keep you in the residential treatment facility, which is prison, for the entire length of your post-release supervision, which can be many years. It could be 10 or 15 years in some cases. Regrettably, the appellate division's second department has accepted the state's interpretation of the law. And we are hoping to get the Court of Appeals in Albany to review that decision. Um, 
so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, what's being done to try to challenge um, the state of the registry and um, the state of, Sa of SARA. And, and we will certainly talk some more about legal challenges. Um, but perhaps, um, uh, Bill, you could shed some light on um, sort of advocacy efforts um, to, to try to move us from where we are. Um, there, there is nascent organizing around the country. It's not strong enough, and I want to give uh, kudos to the City Bar Association and Legal Aid and other folks who pinch hit in the, in, without an advocacy or a policy group to do it um, when there's some threat from the legislature or the governor's office. Uh, there are often amazing memos that have gone out. Um, we need to strengthen that. And I want to make a pitch. Thank you for pushing me. Um, I want to make a pitch that there's an amazing collection of people in this room. This event is helping to revitalize an area of the law that's not only neglected and sort of marooned, um, it's got an hit factor, but it's the, it's the twilight of constitutional and human rights. Um, so if you care about rights and liberties, you should care about this area of the law. Um, we can dismantle these laws, and I hasten to add, they're not doing anything for public safety. They're creating enormous reentry and reintegration problems and a lot of costs. And there are 900,000 people listed on registries around the country, and multiply that by, I don't know, three. This is something that's impacting several millions of people. Um, what would help beyond the litigation, I mean collecting the lawyers and getting a lot more oomph, is a lot more people to come into this area and make fighting these crazy laws a thing. So anybody is welcome to stick around afterward and see, you know, there's one idle idea to at least have some sort of daytime event where people could say what it is they're doing because there are many of us in New York, but this area, uh, uh, this kind of work um, gets uh, grueling and isolated. Um, yes, it does. <laughs> um, uh, Bob, could you tell us uh, a little bit, so um, just to sort of get, I suppose, back into um, the, the state's position that this, this six-month placement um, can be renewed just sort of indefinitely for the whole period of your um, uh, community supervision. Um, so, you know, obviously one of the, one of the live issues uh, is this question of um, is that actually authorized under correction law 73 sub 10? Uh, which is uh, what they're relying on, um, a provision that seems to say that um, the commissioner of dogs, according to them, can house somebody, can use an RTF as a residence for someone for as long as they're on community supervision, um, which, you know, as we've said, could be decades. Um, what are the other areas where uh, we're pushing on? So we've, we've also talked about um, whether... Um, whether uh, DOCS is meeting the, um, its obligations to assist with housing, um, 
we've talked a little bit about the whether the RTFs are in fact providing what they have to provide to meet the definition of an RTF. Um, I think one other aspect of this is a lot of people in RTFs, most of the people that we're, we're thinking about here are people who are trying to come back to New York City because those are the people that are really facing these tiny slivers of the map that they can actually find housing in. Um, but the RTFs where they're placed are hours away from New York City. They're not um, you know, helping them to get back into the New York City community where they are from, where their families are. Um, so uh, anyway, that was a very long wind up, but if, uh, <laughs> if you could sort of shed some light on, on, on the specific issues that are in your case and in, um, we have a couple of other cases uh, on their way to the Court of Appeals now. In 2014, Docs, the state, made an agreement with the city, Department of Homeless Services, that the Department of Homeless Services would accept 10 persons a month into the Sarah compliant shelters. There are four of them, four or five, depending on how you count it. They're all located either in the Bronx or on Ward's Island. Originally, there were more than that, but later, in response to political pressure, they remeasured it and found that certain shelters in Brooklyn and Queens were, in fact, less than a thousand feet from school grounds. Now, in the shelters that are Sarah compliant, that are in the Bronx and on Ward's Island, there actually are enough beds to accommodate at least the people who are past their maximum expiration date in the RTFs. But the city refuses to move people out, other people, non, people not subject to the Sarah Law, out of those shelters to make room for the people who are stuck in prison. And we sued the city as well as the state in the Alcantara case arguing that the city's obligation to house the homeless, and they recognize an obligation to house the homeless, including sex offenders, requires the city to make room for these people who are stuck in prison and need shelter. But the city opposed us. The city at that time, in the month that the judge was making her decision, opened up said that they were going to be able, at least for a few months, to take more than 10 people. And the judge went for the city's argument and dismissed the part of the lawsuit that was against the city, which we at some point hoped to appeal. But right after that, the city went back to accepting only 10 persons a month into the shelter system who were subject to the Sarah Law, and that's the way it still is, and uh, you know, we did a little uh, study uh, and uh, found uh, that as of about a month ago, there were 147 people in the so-called residential treatment facilities because they hadn't been able to get Sarah-compliant housing, and uh, the uh, average length of confinement in the residential treatment facility was 206 days, or 130 days, if you, depending on whether you look at the mean or the median. 
So lots and lots of people are being held more than six months, and this is only the people past their maximum expiration date. It doesn't count the very large number of people who are past their conditional release date who have been granted their good time, or in some cases have been granted parole, who are still in prison only because they can't find housing far enough away from school and for no other reason. Now, the other thing Camille referred to is a case called Gonzalez versus Anucci. The main, that's being handled by the Center for Appellate Litigation. It's to be argued in the Court of Appeals next month. And the main issue there is whether the state must provide substantial assistance to people who are stuck without being able to find housing, meaning that the state has to do more than simply take an address that the individual proposes and say yes or no. That's really all the state does. And the state is maintaining that that's all they need to do. The appellate division's third department said they have to do at least a little more without defining what exactly that meant. And we're hoping that at least the Court of Appeals will agree with that. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you, do you have any thoughts for people who are litigating these SOAR hearings for these non-contact um, offenses? What is the best way to debunk this idea that there is a sort of connection between um, uh, possessing um, child pornographic images and, and contact offenses? What do, you, what do you find to be effective before the judges? Um, well, there, there is a, a Second Circuit case that, that um, did come down. U.S. versus Dorby is the name of the case. And it's actually a case where the um, Second Circuit said the enhancements that they found in the sentencing guidelines, there was no empirical data similar to the, the notion as far as risk of reoffending that um, people have advocated for expanding the registry. The same was true for um, expanding punishment on the possession of child pornography grounds. Dorvey actually, um, I think it was Judge Parker that wrote the decision, and, it, and it's a very good decision. It came down, um, I think, I forget the year, but nonetheless, it's U.S. versus Dorvey. And there he said that what they were finding with these non-hands-on offenses is that hands-on offenders would actually be getting less sentences than the non-hands-on offenses, and it just was completely out of whack because Congress continued to pass without any empirical data as far as risk to community or risk to reoffend for possession of child pornography cases that these sentencing guidelines, again, like I said earlier, were through the roof. So I think a parallel can be drawn here as far as attacking the broadening of residency requirements where at least that case you had the Second Circuit and Judge Parker who took it up upon himself to say, all right, this, you know, this is wrong, that these guidelines are so punitive um, for possession of child pornography that we need to, to go back to the Sentencing Guideline Commission and say, when Congress is enhancing punishment, there has to be some empirical data to support the punishment um, and the enhancements on, on these sentencing guidelines. So that is something that I think when we go back, and there's been now more articles that have been written and we have the empirical data to show that the risk of reoffense and the, the recidivism for um, child pornography or, or sex offenders is very low. And there's, there are, are, are studies now that contradict the Supreme Court language that's often cited 
So we really rely on those to say, hey, this is not something that sh the court should consider. Thankfully, with Booker, um, if we can get the case into a, a um, non-receipt uh, or non-distribution, meaning a non-mandatory minimum type setting, we can then argue for a variance, a downward variance, to get a, a client. Because a lot of the times with, with the, when they then get housed in, in uh, my clients in uh, the Bureau of Prisons, there's a grave risk of um, vulnerability for these offenders as far as being targeted as they call them chomos or sex offenders when you're talking about uh, improperly. Um, and, and the unfortunate, uh, the Bureau of Prisons um, staff, I think either encourages it or oftentimes reveals what their offenses are so that they're further stigmatized while they're incarcerated. Um, so that, that vulnerability is another argument that I often advocate for my clients that there is a very low rate of, of recidivism. There often is a need for um, continued psychological treatment for these individuals where they get none of that at the Bureau of Prisons. There is certain uh, sex offender management programs, but those are only at a few facilities and very rarely offered to um, these type offenders. So we can argue that the break in the continuum of care for clients is dramatic and they've built that bond and relationship with treatment providers that's very important and thankfully, there's judges that, that I've made that argument to and have been receptive to um, saying that it should be a, a, a great downward variance for clients because of those factors. So I think that that's, again, getting, you know, putting together a strong sentencing advocacy. That very rarely, these cases, you, you don't take them to trial because of the nature of the offense. So it's really more sentencing advocacy and also trying to negotiate to get your client first evaluated to get into the U.S. Attorney's Office and say, this is a case that warrants a possession as opposed to a receipt. Possession and receipt, if you receive it, uh, you're obviously possessing it. That's got a five-year mandatory minimum under the statute. You have to get it into a straight possession so that there is no mandatory minimum. Um, I just want to open it up to anyone on the panel. If, if anyone feels that there's something that's sort of uncovered that, uh, or has not been covered uh, that people should know. Um, uh, otherwise, um, and then after that, I, I'd love to open it up to the floor. Um, if there's anything that people feel we haven't well, touched on. Just from a, a practical standpoint, we're talking about people who have, many of them, have families that want them to come home and want them to live with them, and instead we're forcing them to live in homeless shelters under deplorable conditions, which is not free either. It's about $3,000 a month to house a single adult in the shelter. It's about $60,000 a year to house somebody in a prison in New York State. So we're spending a lot of resources so unnecessarily, um, financially even, aside from just what makes sense. Even parole will say, although they don't have the guts to stand up to the legislators, they'd much rather supervise somebody who lives in a family, in a home or an apartment building where they can say, how is Uncle Joe doing, you know, as opposed to a shelter where it's just masses of people. Um, many of whom are under the influence of drugs and where the hiking, is, uh, you know, you should can comment on how, what the situation is on one's island. Um, it just doesn't make sense. There's, since there's no reason to believe that this thousand feet uh, means anything. Um, you know, I, I got uh, one question. I, I get uh, uh, letters every day 
from persons who uh, seek our help to uh, get them out uh, of these uh, prisons. And uh, I happened to get one letter today that I actually would like to read from because this uh, man who's in the Fishkill Correctional Facility stuck in this RTF has a poetic bent. He is only a 10th grade education, but what he writes here really summarizes what we are dealing with. He says, Once again my house is a place made of steel and stone, a barren cell, a house in hell, where once again I must atone to make the state's revenge complete. For our paid past crimes once again, I with time wear lights glare both night and day, and though I rage and pace the cage, I still have to stay and pay. This house in hell is one small cell no man wants to own, for in here I have to once again spend days, weeks, months, and years condemned. A man the world disowned, a man all men condemn for sin, but no one strives to save. And can I just add something? Like uh, Many of you know, just to the cruel and horrific, horrific nature of these laws, many of you might have heard there's like a big hurricane approaching the Carolinas, and the homeless shelters, the hurricane shelters have banned people with sex offenses. So it's basically, it's so pointlessly cruel. A few years ago, a, a homeless man in Michigan uh, couldn't enter the shelters because he had a sex offense and he froze to death on the street. And Bill, you know his name, right? I can't remember, but um, yeah. anyway. Um, so yeah, the brutality is so intense. But at the same time, advocating for people on the registry also is very complicated. So I just want to thank Cal in particular because I don't know what goes on there, but you guys just have so many amazing people who dedicate themselves. Uh, Camilla, Lauren, Susanna, Christina, doing all this stuff. Thank you. Um, so I would like to open up the floor if anybody has uh, any questions. Yes. State Assembly held a hearing, it was, I think it was a couple of years ago, on proposals to make the laws even worse than they are now. And we were able to persuade the State Assembly to resist proposals to make the laws worse. As far as making them better, we're waiting to see what the election results are, and then we are going to try to maybe pursue that. Not be providing housing assistance, but it also sounds like there is virtually no place 
replace them. So has docs argued, or might they argue, that they are unable to fulfill their statutory obligation because the nature of the housing restrictions themselves make it impossible for non-penological reasons to put to return people to the community. I mean, have they, would they make that argument? And, and they do make that argument, but your first question is very important, and I'd like others to answer it. My my take is that um, when I said before that the whole array of sex offense laws uh, maroon um, that includes criminal justice reformers. So one of the top priorities that I would have is to get these issues, these laws, um, uh, embraced by criminal justice reform forces in this state and in the country. Um, and then second, I would say, you know, any kind of grassroots, personally impacted organizing. Um, but right now, there's often an exception in reform statutes, which is anybody who's related to violence, uh, offenses and anybody who's related to any to sex any offense. sex offenses, and we've got to change that. Part of the way, part part of what this is about. I mean, everybody's sort of sitting there. Oh my God, this is so serious. It's Kafka. They're they're telling you about prisons that are not prisons. This is like cuckoo. You know, you're not crazy. This is nuts. And part of the way that this happens is you create monsters. And one of the dynamics of that is put a label in a law, uh, it becomes irresistible for reporters to repeat that label when they write about the law. It becomes popular to use that term and pretty soon the individuals vanish and suddenly we have these terrible um, labels that are actually people. Uh, so it's actually very important to think about the language and it, it reflects a growing resistance to these things. But yeah, if you work in other um, criminal justice worlds, um, find out why uh, the registry doesn't even get cited, the eight or 900,000 doesn't even get cited when the usual stats about 2.3 million behind bars on any given day are, are rattled off. Because it's a big number. Um, yes.
I mean, the one pressure point is David Weprin, who is now the chair of the Assembly Criminal Justice Committee. But the truth is, uh, the reason why they, these laws are so popular that we need your voices to come up and say, this is insanity, stop it. Oh, somebody, they're alive. not congealed yet. It's not happening yet. It will happen. If people step forward, we'll figure out where to put the folks. I can name three other uh, politicians who are receptive to our arguments. Uh, Senator Valmanette Montgomery in Brooklyn, uh, Assemblyman Jeff Aubrey in Queens, Assemblyman Daniel O'Donnell in Manhattan, and I'm sure there are others but we really need to build a statewide coalition of people in various places. And uh, if uh, your own representative you know, can be given a story about someone that you know, someone in his or her district who is suffering from these laws, you know, that's what we need. Yep, in the second.
There's a lot of terrible stuff around termination of parental rights, fathers and mothers, um, that needs to be reckoned with. I had, if you, you know, come up afterward, I have some uh, pieces written by women on the registry that are interesting, and then perhaps the most well-known woman on the registry is Shauna, who is in uh, if People Seen Untouchable, the documentary premiered at Tribeca. It doesn't have a distribution deal, unfortunately, but it's a fantastic documentary. And Shauna is trying to raise her kids um, in that dock, and it's very difficult. Um, yes. The same law that contains a residency restriction also contains a rule that the person under parole supervision cannot access a social networking website. In addition, one of the 60 or so special sex offender parole conditions that parole applies in its discretion, so to speak, says that you can't even own a computer without your parole officer's written permission. And if you do, you have to give uh, all of your passwords and identifiers to your parole officer. Now, I have not litigated these cases, although persons on parole have complained about just what you were saying and asked me for help. Perhaps someone else on the panel could comment on well, that. Well, realize there's something in common with the residency restrictions and knocking people off of social media or even the internet altogether. That's a banishment strategy. And banishment is supposed to be unconstitutional. 
Um, there is a battle in the, the dust hasn't quite settled yet from a big um, U.S. Supreme Court case, Packingham, which came down last year, and the Supreme Court has said that the government cannot keep people from social media, and for the first time they uh, ratified the idea that the digital world, the online world, is something of a 21st century commons. Um, but it's going to take a battle. Now the battle shifts to corporate America, Google uh, and Facebook and Twitter and all the large corporations because there was a huge stampede about a decade ago to kick anybody and everybody who happens to have a scarlet letter off. Uh, and it connects to a push for digital freedom for those who are both incarcerated and um, re-entering because you can't function without um, being connected to that digital commons. So it's fascinating to read about people who get busted sneaking in iPhones um, because they want to keep their Facebook account up. I think this is part of why this particular issue in Gonzalez is really important because the, where this comes to a head most pointedly, uh, in my experience, is, is people can't get released from prison unless they have an address and obviously um, really difficult to, to find anywhere uh, without outside family resources to try to help you with that. So, so that's why this particular question of, of the assistance provided by docs is, is really important. Um, yes? Uh, <clears throat> Part of the issue here is that, uh, as John says, the state refuses to provide 
the proprietary computer algorithm that they use to measure the thousand feet. We've asked for it in our litigation, and they've refused to give it to us. Another problem is that the law, they measure the, dis the distance and say this is required by the statute as the crow flies in a, instead of how many feet you would have to walk in order to get from the house to the school. Now, they could change the law, either legislatively or by court decision, to measure it as the, the tape measure distance. It would allow at least a few people to get housing who can't get it now. But so far, the state has not done that. Um, so, yeah, last question. People ask me that question all the time, and I don't know the answer. I wish yeah. someone else here did. <laughs> And that's only after a passage of time. So you have to wait. I mean, you can, you can make the application earlier. A lot of times with my clients, who, when they get out of federal prison, they're, they're then on supervised release. So working with the federal probation officer for appropriate housing, they have to approve all of that. Um, and I think when you asked as far as where can we align advocacy, uh, the case that I had from Rockland County back in, again, it was 2009, but that was where the probation department reached out to the defense bar and said, hey, we can't monitor these guys because of the restrictive nature of these local laws. They're, they're being lost. There's no place where they could live. So that's where a joint effort between the defense bar and, and the Rockland County Probation Department challenged that local law to say it was unconstitutional. I think that that's where perhaps there's some fertile ground where you can align with the division of parole or probation departments to say, it's in your interest, look at this map. How are you gonna be able to monitor anybody that's a, a level three or a level two if they, you can't house them? They're, they're going to be, and that's what happened in California, when that, that ultimately they, they scaled back the residency requirements because probation was having trouble trying to monitor these guys. It's like, where are they? They're under the, they're under the bridge, you know, and, and they're homeless. And, and now the whole notion behind the registry is lost. So that, that, I think, is really, at least now, the beginning points of where we can align with, with the people that are supposed to be monitoring the, our clients as to getting, whether it be appropriate housing or challenging the overbreadth of these statutes. California scaled back the residency restrictions because the California Supreme Court held that they were unconstitutional as a matter of the state constitution. We are trying to develop litigation here arguing that the restrictions are unconstitutional. Uh, we have not filed it yet. Uh, if there's anyone here who would like to work with us on that litigation, that would be welcome. Um, okay, well, I think that's all our time. Thank you so much to everybody for coming.